Thanks for downloading this History Hub podcast. In this episode, a recording from the 2014 Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference, which was held at NUI Maynooth. The conference, now in its fourth year, was generously supported by the UCD School of History and Archives, UCD Research, Marsh's Library, Graduate Studies at NUI Maynooth, and the Department of History at NUI Maynooth. This podcast features a paper by Simon Egan of University College Cork. His paper was entitled The Maxwini Lordship of Fanad in the Later 15th Century. In the summer of 1495, Aru O'Donnell, the Gaelic Irish Lord of Tyrconnell, embarked on a brief but dangerous diplomatic mission to Scotland. His aim was to rendezvous with the young King of Scots, James IV. So, moving swiftly, Aerua traversed the North Channel and made a safe landfall near the port town of Glasgow. Here, he was received by the Scottish King, and both men promptly entered into what the Annals of the Four Masters have dubbed uh, a coenta, or alliance. Uh, soon after completing this pact, Aerua boarded ship once more and returned to his lordship on the north-western coast of Ireland, his mission a resounding success. Now, uh, the O'Donnell-Stewart alliance was reflective of the new balance of power within the Northern Irish Sea world. From a Scottish perspective, it represented the growing influence of the Scottish king within the British Isles, as well as a greater projection of royal Scottish power westwards following the collapse of the MacDonald uh, Lordship of the Isles in the 1490s. From an Irish perspective, it was reflective of the burgeoning power of the O'Donnells of Tyrconnell, who, over the course of the previous 40 years, had emerged as the dominant faction in the northern Irish sea world. The basis for O'Donnell power in this period rested on their ability to maintain and cre- sorry, to create and min- maintain an alliance network that stretched across the wider Gaelic world or the wider Gaeltacht. During the later Middle Ages, this wider Gaelic world had come to span nearly 50% of the landmass that was the British Isles, encompassing most of Ireland, the Hebrides, and large areas of northern Highland Scotland. A common language, a shared literary heritage, typified the cultural connections between Gaelic Ireland and Gaelic Scotland. But dynastic politics, military struggles, and shrewd diplomacy defined the politics of the wider Gaelic world. It's also important to remember that this Gaelic world was a maritime world. The sea allowed for the easy movement of peoples not only between Ulster and Scotland, but in all coastal regions of the Gaeltacht, controlling strategic inland inland passageways as well as key coastal routes was essential to the successful domination of the political landscape both by land and by sea. The maintenance of fleets to varying degrees of size was of paramount importance to many Gaelic lords. Ships could guard the coast from external amphibious assault but also give um, Gaelic lords a major tactical advantage allowing them to intervene in lordships normally inaccessible by land or in far-flung regions of the Gaeltacht. Moreover, fleets enable the lords to police territorial waters and protect the most valuable resource, the sea itself, which could generate huge amounts of wealth for the Gaelic magnates. Now, this is where the Maxweenies fit in. Originally, the Maxweenies had been a powerful hybrid Gaelic-Scottish Norse faction that had controlled the Napdale Peninsula uh, in western Scotland. However, they were dispossessed during uh, the Norse-Scottish Wars of the mid-13th century, and they gradually migrated to Ireland, seeking employment as mercenary Galloglass. Initially, they had mixed results. Um, it, was, it took them a while to establish themselves. For instance, one Maxweeny chieftain was, ended up being captured by the Earl of Ulster, um, and he died of starvation in his dungeon. So um, we can see that it was a difficult period for them, but... 
following the outbreak of the Scottish Wars of Independence in the late 13th century and carrying on into the early 14th century, um, Edward I and Edward II used Max Sweeney exiles in Ireland to open a second front against um, uh, Robert Bruce. However, Scott, the Scottish victory in these wars eventually forced the Maxweenies to settle in Ireland. And by the mid-14th century, they had established themselves in Tyrconnell, where they were granted the Lordship of Fanad in um, the western part of Tyrconnell. It's also just worth mentioning that a number of other Maxweeny branches also settled other areas of Tyrconnell, and a further number of branches gradually settled and found employment uh, in parts of Connacht and Munster, but I won't go into that this time. Um, the Maxweenies quickly came to form the core of O'Donnell's armies, but the main point to take into account is that they were effectively O'Donnell's crack troops in this period, and it was their ability to fight both on land and by sea uh, is what gave the um, O'Donnells uh, an extra sharp military edge at this time. Furthermore, the Gaelic-Irish analytic sources indicate that the Maxweenies had a small fleet of ships which they used to patrol um, the coast of Tyrconnell, but also to launch um, amphibious assaults on neighbouring territories and even conduct um, some long-distance uh, military operations. So, admittedly, the title of this paper is perhaps slightly misleading. While I originally intended uh, the Maxweenies to be the main focus of this paper, I would also like to devote some time to discussing the broader maritime dimension of the Gaelic world during this period, as well as mentioning some of the more significant developments within the Gaelic world that helped to understand uh, the reasons behind the emergence of the O'Donnells and contextualise uh, the role played by the Maxweenies in this. So, um, first of all, what do we know about maritime power in 15th century Ireland? We know quite a bit about the east coast of Ireland, namely the more anglicised areas of the island, where the historical and archaeological record is much more complete. We can see the importance of um, trade within the Irish Sea, between the Anglo-Irish ports of Waterford, Dublin and Cork, with English ports such as Bristol and Chester, as well as continental ports such as La Rochelle and Bordeaux. We know quite a bit about the types of ships used, and we also um, have, a lot, have a reasonable amount of information on the fishing industry, which was uh, booming in the later Middle Ages, thanks to the migration of large herring stocks to the Irish coasts, and in turn this drew uh, huge numbers of Dutch, English and Iberian fishermen to the Irish coasts. Conversely, we know a lot less about the West Coast, which was controlled by the Gaelic lords. Here, much less has survived in the historical and archaeological record. For instance, the Gaelic-Irish Annals, uh, which are one of the main sources um, for Gaelic Ireland in this period, they contain only a handful of references to Gaelic-Irish maritime activity, um, namely the use of um, galleys. Now, at face value, it is very easy to dismiss the importance of maritime power in Gaelic Ireland. However, a closer reading of a broader source base is able to redress this issue. Comparative studies with Gaelic Scotland are also hugely useful. The importance of maritime power and the maintenance of sizeable galley fleets is nowhere more clearly illustrated than, um, than Gaelic Scotland. We can see, based on the rather considerable uh, corpus of charcoal material, as well as some surviving bardic poetry, how Gaelic Scottish factions such as the Campbells, the Macdonalds, the Macdougalls, the Macleans, the Macleods, all relied on uh, galleys for transportation purposes, but also to secure uh, essential sea routes in the Hebrides. Um, as well as the various locks on the western Scottish seaboard. It's also worth noting that castles were often strategically, strategically located to help control access to certain harbours and inlets. Um, 
archaeological studies over the past number of years have also helped greatly to increase our understanding of um, the maritime dimension present in many Gaelic lordships. The work of Colin Breen, Connie Kelleher, Paul Nasons, to name a few, has been central to this, and they've shown how the sea could generate enormous amounts of wealth for Gaelic factions such as the O'Malley's, Flaherty's, O'Driscoll's and O'Sullivan Bear. They've also examined how these Gaelic lords patrol territorial waters with small fleets of ships in order to exact fees from visiting merchants and fishermen. So, again, similar to Gaelic Scotland, castles could also be located in strategic locations to help improve control of harbours and inlets. But what of the O'Donnells? As noted, Tyrconnell was located on the northwest coast of Ireland and was a maritime lordship in the mould of the others that I mentioned. Catherine Sims and Darren McGittigan have both done some work on the economic structures of the O'Donnell lordship and have examined how O'Donnell chieftains uh, could make some serious money from coastal trade and from capitalising on the booming fishing industry. However, the role of maritime power in O'Donnell expansion over the course of the later 15th century has largely been overlooked within the historiography. So essentially, this paper will attempt to examine the importance of maritime power in O'Donnell expansion during the later 15th century, as well as exploring the role played by the McSweeney's in this. Okay, so the origins of O'Donnell power in the later 15th century have their roots in the earlier 15th century, where the balance of power across the northern half of Ireland was redrawn into two main alliance blocks. Originally, this stemmed from a civil war in Connacht, where two factions contested uh, the kingship of Connacht, namely the Down and Rua factions. Much of this conflict was um, centred on the strategic lordships of uh, Carberry, which is modern-day Sligo, and Breffy, uh, modern-day Leitrim. Whoever controlled these territories could, in theory, control access to and from Ulster and Connacht. Um, so, as a result... Um, the Rua faction looked to the O'Donnells of Tyrconnell for support, while the Down faction looked to the O'Neills of Tyrone as a counterbalance to uh, the O'Donnells within Ulster. This geopolitical situation in the northwestern Ulster and northern Connacht was also um, repeated in Leinster and Munster, where um, both the Down faction and Rua faction had considered support. And you can see it here in um, northern Munster, the O'Briens, for instance, were supporting. Um, MacWilliam of Clanrigard, they were both in the Down faction. It happens in Leinster as well with the O'Connors of Offaly. Now, there was also a strong maritime dimension to this conflict. Over the course of the early 15th century, the O'Donnells had largely been unable to reduce the O'Connors of Sligo to obedience. And this in turn restricted um, the O'Donnells from campaigning in Connacht. To counter this, uh, the O'Donnells and their allies in the Rua faction uh, used ships to move troops from Tyrconnell into Connacht. Uh, and vice versa, uh, in an attempt to gain uh, the upper hand and break the, street, uh, the strategic deadlock that was in Northern Connacht. Uh, it had mixed success, but I won't go into the specifics. Um, the Down faction, on the other hand, were also able to organise considerable maritime support. The most notable instance occurred in 1433, when Owen O'Neill, the Lord of Tyrone, and Brian O'Connor, the Lord of um, Sligo, formed an alliance with Donald Ballock MacDonald, Lord of the Glens of Antrim uh, against O'Donnell. Uh, so there was a strong Scottish dimension um, to this alliance. Um, Donald Ballock and his kinsmen, the MacDonalds of the Western Isles, um, had been at war with the Scottish Crown for a number of years. 
more worrying still for them was the fact that James I of Scotland had formed an alliance with the O'Donnells in order to encircle the Macdonalds and kind of um, catch them in, in, in a pincer movement. However, Donald Ballock and his Irish allies were able to counter this, and in 1433 they launched a three-pronged attack on Tyrconnell with Donald Ballock, Donald Ballock leading an amphibious assault on the uh, Inishon Peninsula. So he lands here while... Uh, on an moves north and around Connor moves north as well. This attack forced the O'Donnells into submission, and as a result, the O'Donnell lordship descended into fractious infighting amongst themselves um, for the next uh, 20 years. This in turn had a domino effect on the rule faction in Connacht, which quickly collapsed without the support of the O'Donnells, and this allowed uh, the down faction to become preeminent. It's one of the main reasons why we see O'Neill's supremacy in Ulster in this period. Uh, as well as the emergence of MacWilliam of Clan Rickard and O'Brien of Thomond as regional, super, uh, regional superpowers as well. So, the O'Donnell's bid for power in the early 15th century had failed drastically. The second half of the century, however, would see them succeed. As noted, the O'Donnells, following their defeat, had fallen into civil war for the next 20 years, and they remained greatly reduced in strength. However, by the late 1450s, a Rue O'Donnell had emerged as the strongest claimant to the O'Donnell chieftaincy. More importantly, he commanded the loyalty of the Maxwingas of Fanet. He made a number of attempts to take power to O'Connell, but was defeated in 1456 and spent four years alongside his ally, male mother Maxwini, uh, the chief of Fanet, in captivity in Omagh Castle. However, in 1460, both he and Mailmora escaped and they returned to Tyrconnell and retook power. With the assistance of the McSweeney's, A. Rua quickly set about rebuilding um, the O'Donnell network of alliances across Connacht. The O'Neills of Tyrone and O'Connells of Sligo were largely unable to prevent this because they were preoccupied with a series of rebellions in their respective regions at this time. But in rebuilding the power, again, there was a strong maritime dimension to this. For instance, in 1464, um, Richard MacWilliam Burke, the Lord of Eichter Connacht, sent troops from Mayo into Tyrconnell using ships um, to prop up O'Donnell and this further emphasises the, the maritime nature of these lordships and highlights how Ulster and Connacht were connected in ways other than by land. Ultimately this intervention strengthened Aero's position against the O'Neills and allowed him to turn his attention um, southwards to Connacht. Here he assisted the Rue faction on a number of hostings uh, and brought the burgeoning military resources of the O'Donnells to bear, especially the Maxwini Gallagras, which feature quite prominently uh, in the Gaelic sources for this period. So gradually, O'Donnell helped to rehabilitate the Rua faction and partook in a number of significant battles against them, most notably the Battle of Glenog in 1469, where it's in uh, southern Connacht, where he smashed MacWilliam of Clanricard's army. So in the space of less than a decade, Aerua had transformed the O'Donnell's position on the west coast of Ireland. However, developments in Scotland, sorry, developments in Ireland were but one in a series of factors pertaining to the re-emergence of the O'Donnells. Affairs in Scotland were also um, playing a highly significant role. So, with their western flank secure following Donald Ballock's intervention in Tyrconnell in 1433, the Macdonalds had been able to force the Scottish Crown into a settlement which resulted in Macdonald domination of much of northern Scotland for the next 40 years. It also allowed them to maintain a grip on um, the North Channel between Ireland and Scotland. 
However, by the late 1450s, early 1460s, the Scottish crown under James II and subsequently James III took a more aggressive stance with the MacDonalds and they began a prolonged offensive against the MacDonald holdings in the Western Isles. So using the Clan Campbell of Arc Island south, uh, as well as um, the Royal Army further to the north, um, the Scottish Crown was able to drive a wedge between uh, the MacDonalds of the Northern Hebrides and those controlling Antrim and the Southern Hebrides. Eirua was quick to exploit this, and we can, it is here we can really see um, the importance of the Maxwinis. Originally, the Lordship of Clandeboy, uh, in white here, um, had been closely allied to the O'Neill's of Tyrone and the MacDonalds of Antrim. However, during the late 1460s, a civil war had divided the, the Lordship. The more dominant claimant, um, Conwy O'Neill, was hostile to both the O'Neill's of Tyrone and the MacDonalds of Antrim. More importantly, in the early 1470s, A. Rua dispatched a large force of his Maxwini Galloglass to Clandeboy to assist Conwy in his bid for power, as well as putting pressure on the MacDonalds of Antrum. <coughs> Again, it's unclear from the, for, it's, it's, sorry, it's not exactly clear from the sources, but it appears that the Maxwinis used um, their small fleet to transport themselves to Clandeboy. So, the Maxwini presence in Clandeboy was not an isolated incident. Rather, it reflected the growing power of Eru O'Donnell within the wider Gaelic world. By 1474, he had married Finula O'Brien, the daughter of Conor O'Brien, uh, the Lord of Thomond. Originally, the O'Briens had been firm adherents to the Down faction, but the growing power of O'Donnell seems to, pers- seems to have persuaded him to abandon the sinking ship that was a Down faction. Um, this alliance with O'Brien increased O'Donnell's influence further south along the west coast into Munster and placed even greater pressure on the remnant of the Down faction in Connacht. So, with his position there more secure, um, O'Donnell then led a major hosting, including large numbers of his Maxwini Galloglass, into Leinster, where he reduced all the main Down faction adherents to obedience, as well as propping up some of the Rua faction allies, such as O'Connor of Offaly. As touched on earlier, uh, the Scottish Crown was having some considerable success in driving a wedge between the Southern MacDonalds and the Northern MacDonalds. In 1476, the Scottish Crown succeeded in reclaiming large areas of Northern Scotland, which had been lost to the MacDonalds um, since the late 1430s. However, uh, both the Northern and Southern MacDonalds realised that developments in Ireland were having an equally negative impact on their fortunes, especially the, co- the continued expansion of the O'Donnells. In an attempt to uh, undermine Eru's alliance network, both MacDonald factions dispatched a number of military expeditions to Connacht in the late 1470s and 80s in an attempt to undercut uh, O'Donnell's alliance network. However, O'Donnell himself personally led uh, a hosting south and defeated them on both occasions. As a result, MacDonald power in Hebrides continued to decline. So it's a measure of how the balance of power within the Northern Irish Sea world had been completely transformed that, in 40, that by 1490, the Campbells of Argyll managed to send a force to the, to the king of the um, modern-day county Derry, uh, where they made contact with one of O'Donnell's allies, uh, namely the O'Cahan chieftain. So on one level, this represented how the former MacDonald hegemony of the Northern Irish Sea world uh, was now a thing of the past, um, now that their enemies, the Campbells, could meddle in Irish affairs. It's also the first record instance of possible uh, O'Donnell-Campbell cooperation, but it's equally possible that um, 
this had been occurring uh, since a much earlier time, perhaps the 1460s or even earlier, uh, it remains fully examined. Um, now, because the balance of power had been transformed, the Gaelic-Irish could also meddle in Scotland, um, a phenomenon that had not been seen since uh, the 14th century. And this is evident from um, Aru's visit to Scotland in 1495 to negotiate the military alliance with um, James IV. Okay? So, um, just kind of a couple of concluding remarks. Um, it's very clear that maritime power played a very central role in O'Donnell expansion during the late 15th century. And while this paper um, kind of gave a very rough overview of, of, of this concept, um, I think the Maxwinis do give a taste um, for this phenomenon. And I think it, it's something that we could perhaps, for, if we're, for those of us studying Gaelic Ireland and Gaelic Scotland, it's something perhaps that we could maybe incorporate into these kind of studies, especially uh, this deals more with the medieval period, but perhaps for a study of the Gaelic resurgence um, that begins in the early 14th century, how does maritime power uh, contribute to pushing back the former Anglo-Norman colony? It's just an idea, perhaps. Uh, thanks for listening to me. Thank you.